Hello, Energy Gang listeners. Before we start the show, I want to remind you about GTM's upcoming Solar Summit on May 11th and 12th in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is our ninth year doing this conference, and it's become a must-attend for anyone in the solar industry. We're going to unpack data on the global solar market and talk about the biggest stories in solar with top executives. Energy Gang listeners can get 15% off their registration. Just use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, on checkout, and you can use the discount anytime between now and when the Solar Summit starts. Hope to see you there. And now on to the show. For the week of March 31st, 2016, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. This week, the U.S. utility industry is on a mission to rebrand itself. We take a look at a new strategy led by a marketing guru to counter perceived attacks on utilities. Then the Energy Information Administration speaks. After years of facing criticism for underestimating renewables, the government's energy statistics arm comes out in defense of its projections. Finally, a new report from a top renewables lab shows that America can get 40% of its electricity from rooftop solar alone. We'll examine the assumptions and the results. I am Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. Green Tech Media's managing editor and your MC in Colorado this week is Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions, our regular co-host. You are at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. What are you doing there? Yeah, I'm at the Education Center with the C3E Ambassador Program through the Clean Energy Ministerial, and we get together twice a year, one for, once for a big symposium and once, which is now, for deciding on winners in eight award categories of mid-career women. So it's all about women helping women, and man, it, it's really great to be among all these incredible women. That's That's fantastic. Do you get to walk around the lab and look at all the cool projects ongoing there? Yes, we got a tour of the ESIF, which is their newest building, the Energy Systems Integration Facility, and I'll talk a little bit about that um, at the end of the show. But uh, it also happens to be snowing here. It is crazy windy here in Boston. I don't know if you can hear that in the background, but uh, it's feeling like spring here, but my God, the wind is is intense. In New York City sits our other co-host, Jigger Shah, who's also the president of Generate Capital. And tomorrow, I believe, is the premiere of the new movie Catching the Sun. So you're going to go check that out. Yeah. You know, it's pretty amazing. We've got 100 screenings around the country sponsored by solar companies. And, um, and you know, I th- Village Voice just reviewed the film and gave it two thumbs up. And New York Times and LA Times are going to do their reviews uh, today or tomorrow. So um, pretty excited that the solar industry might make it into more of the mainstream. We've got one more exciting thing. We, uh, last week... I didn't announce this because we didn't have a show last week, but we hit a million downloads. So that's uh, a nice milestone for us here. We, Yay! Of course, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, everybody. And we're going to try to figure out who that millionth listener is, and once we figure that out, we'll send them a spiral-bound copy of transcripts of Jigger's rants on EIA and Bill Gates. <laughs> We'll give them the assignment of tracking all of my predictions and, and getting an accurate count of how many were successful. <laughs> well, we're going to do that to EIA, so I guess it's only fair to do that to you as well. So let's get into our first story, uh, and it is on the Edison Electric Institute. Of all the things you can say and all the ways you can say it, there is a right way, and we find it. That's the tagline for Maslansky and Partners a prominent marketing firm that helps the biggest corporations message their products and themselves. And the utility industry is now a client of theirs. 
This week, Kate Shepard of the Huffington Post detailed a new campaign at the Edison Electric Institute to market itself differently to consumers. EEI is the U.S. Utility Industries National Trade Group for those who aren't in the U.S. And Shepard got her hands on an audio recording of a January board meeting where top executives gathered to hear Michael Maslansky explain how to make utilities more appealing to consumers. Um, Maslansky is really well known in the PR industry. Among many other campaigns, he helped Toyota rebrand itself after a disastrous recall, and he's worked with Republican strategists on a wide range of political messaging. We need to be able to think about something sustained, something repetitious, something ongoing, explained Maslansky at that meeting. One example uh, cited in Kate Shepard's story was the suggestion that utilities start calling utility-scale solar community solar in order to make it more inviting and less about utility control. And they also talked about more consumer-centric language generally. So what should we make of this campaign? Catherine, over to you first. What was your initial reaction? Yeah, so the first thing is, I think we should take the context of this, because this was not a story that was put out by EEI. It was leaked. It was in a private meeting. They did not know they were being taped and that that would be released. So I think that's something important to keep in mind when you're thinking about this. The second thing is that, you know, the utility industry is not monolithic. So just because one person is saying something doesn't mean the entire industry is in that place. That said, there's a lot wrong with this. So basically what this this branding person is saying is that they want to put a new spin on something. This isn't about communications. This isn't about let's talk about what the utility is doing right or what we're really getting right. And, and that actually shortchanges the utilities that are doing community solar correctly because Honestly, utility scale solar and community solar are not the same thing because you call it a duck doesn't make it a duck. So this is really just about spin. And that's kind of, to me, the biggest problem is like, that's not where they need to focus. They need to focus on talking about and doing things that are, you know, doing 21st century issues, not 20th century. I don't know that I totally agree with that because they also outlined their yearly um, goals And as part of that board meeting, they talked a lot about a consumer-centric strategy, a lot about better integration of renewables, a speedier interconnection process. So the story from from Kate, which was very well written, seemed to focus on that PR spin. So I agree with your assessment on that. But when you look at it holistically and you look at their goals for the year – I think they are trying to embrace this stuff more than that story would suggest. Yeah, and that's probably true. However, you can't community solar just can we just take the definition of that which is a local solar facility shared by individual community members who receive credits on electric bills for their portion of the power produced. That is not the same as utility scale solar. So the utilities, if you step back, great that they want to embrace it, then they need to talk about it using the right words. And so I think it's true that utilities do want to do the right thing, and a lot of them are embracing community solar, as I just described it. But that's very different from then just saying, let's just use the word community. Well, that's I mean, that's absolutely right. And, I, and you know, look, I, I understand where you're coming from, Stephen. The part that I'm a little bit confused by is whether they're embracing DG um, in this sort of embrace uh, embracing of renewables, right? I mean, I think, they're clearly embracing utility scale wind and solar projects. I mean, that's been going on for some time. And companies like Con Ed, Southern Company, Duke, Dominion, and others who are not necessarily awesome at DEG policy in their own territories are buying up billions of dollars of utility scale solar and wind projects. But I just think that you know, the big challenge here is 
them understanding the SIPA report that we talked about, um, where you know they've got they've got eighty percent of their their customers that want access to local renewable energy on their own roof or in their own community. If you go through the list of the issues they say they care about this year in distributed resources, it is all about educating legislators the regulators talking about avoiding cost shifting. They do talk about promotion of distributed generation, particularly utility ownership of distributed generation and batteries. But there is a lot more language related to cost shifting than it is around consumer access. And that's to be expected, of course. Well, it's not to be expected. It's, 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 it is what it is. I get the fact that it's not you know, a radical departure of what we assumed, but ultimately it will lead to their downfall. I mean, ultimately, when you look at what SMUD has accomplished, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, you know, the thing that people miss is that in the 1990s, SMUD was one of the most hated utilities in all of the West. And it was their embracing of this customer-centric profile that actually radically changed the way in which their customers viewed uh, SMUD. And today, SMUD is pursuing 100% renewable energy by 2050. Um, They are embracing DG in its fullest form. They're embracing community solar. They're doing all these things in a way that's genuine. I mean, doing these things in a way that's not genuine and basically, you know, figuring out how to educate regulators around, you know, issues that are plainly outside of what your consumers want um, is a recipe for more clashes with your your customers. Yeah, the distributed resource piece um Stephen does, as you say, focus more on, you know, how are we adversely impacted by it and how can we avoid that? Um, It does not include any language about consumers, about partnering with third parties who are actually able to provide those services. So it, it, you know, there are, there is a piece on customer focused solutions, but it's, this whole piece is very utility centric. They're looking at this from one lens. I understand that because that's their industry, but I also think, a, their industry is not monolithic. So there are a lot of utilities like SMUD and others that are doing a lot of different things. Um, and then B, there are also just a lot of ways that they can expand what they do by bringing others into their lens. You know, So my when I reached out to a communications professional, he said they're really having a 20th century conversation about a 21st century issue. Now, let's, let's be fair here. There is a section on customer-focused solutions, and they say that they will advocate for improved regulatory policies that provide utilities more flexibility to offer customers programs, products, and services on both sides of the meter, including energy efficiency, demand response, and distributed generation. So that seems to me like they are starting to take this 21st century perspective on these solutions. This, This seems like a pretty strong departure from previous rhetoric. Um, I think it's a softening of previous rhetoric. I, look, I, I I want more than anyone else to believe that the utilities have actually made a genuine change. It would make my life so much easier. But I don't think that reading this article that my life is going to get so much easier. I really do think the utility companies still believe very strongly that these CEOs who are making $20 million a year will continue to make $20 million a year by by pushing off you know, New York Rev by pushing off, you know, some of these big utility 2.0 initiatives that are going around around the country. They do not believe that fully embracing those initiatives is what's going to maintain their $20 million a year salary. 
Yes, I, I actually, um, Jigger, agree with you on the point that, but but partly agree with Stephen too, that we need to see if, if they really are doing good things. And I think a lot of utilities are moving forward. If they are going to adopt these other policies, then they need to speak about them in a way that is really smart communications and isn't just spin, because that's what's going to get them in trouble, is if they start using language that's not accurate, that's just looks like a Band-Aid, that is that is that, you know, I, I realize this was all leaked, so we have to kind of take that into consideration, but that, that looks sort of disingenuous rather than saying, Hey, let's figure out what we're doing right and learn how to talk about it in a way that helps us continue to do more right things. Yeah. I, I, I think that people should have a healthy skepticism when they read this story. So major corporations, major industries often undertake these large PR efforts and they can feel disingenuous. But at the same time, as we look at these goals, I think we need to be fair and say, okay, maybe the industry is recognizing that it needs a broader PR effort, but in order to get closer to consumers, it does need to change the way it talks about its services and its approach to customer-centric solutions. So you could look at it in a positive context and say, maybe the industry is realizing that it needs to rebrand on purpose to get closer to those customers and not just to make itself look better. Well, look, I mean, the, the thing about the utility industry is it's actually quite easy to figure out whether they're doing things or not, right? I mean, ultimately, at this point in time with the Grid Edge conference from Green Tech Media to others, it is crystal clear that you can avoid, you know, tens of billions of dollars worth of T&D upgrades with um, technology, whether it's the deployment of distributed generation or battery storage or grid edge technologies. I mean, in Con Ed's territory, you have the BQDM transmission, you know, and distribution uh, project that, you know, would avoid $1.2 billion upgrade. And, you know, right now, Con Ed is, is deliberately doing one, saying one thing and doing another. And, you know, the speculation is, is that they're going to basically go to war over that project and force the Public Service Commission to let them spend $1.2 billion, right? So at the end of the day, I'm happy to talk about branding. I'm happy to talk about marketing, et cetera. But if these venture-backed companies or entrepreneur-backed companies are not getting real contracts and are still stuck in, you know, these endless do loops with demonstration projects, then they haven't changed. Well, now we, now we know. And we'll be able to identify that disconnect much better than we might have previously been able to. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of their branding language shifts. I mean, this may not have been a completely cooked conversation that they were having. I mean, their their actual plan for what they're doing, their corporate goals aren't – that's not about this brand of being community. It's They're much more specific. So, you know, we'll kind of see what they come out with. There's one last piece of this that I think is important to mention. Under – environmental policy and fleet transition issues in this uh, planning document, they do talk about promoting clean power plan implementations, cost-effective solutions under the clean power plan. So they're not saying that they're going to fight the clean power plan. They're saying, let's put proactive plans in place and make this work for us and for customers. That's, That's pretty telling. Well, that's because some of their members are probably telling them they have to do that because a lot of these utilities do not like having the clean power plan up in the air. They want the certainty of knowing what they're going to have to do. They've already started planning for it. I'm sure there's a lot of pressure coming from their membership. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, last fall, the American Electric Power CEO said that this is where the market is headed, and they're preparing to meet clean power plan requirements. So it's no secret that some of the biggest utilities out there are already getting ready for this. Well, and we have discussed the fact that clean power plan is the lowest common denominator. I mean, we think with the five-year extension of the tax credit, we'll probably have 80% of all new electricity added to the grid be solar and wind over the next 10 years. So go read Kate Shepard's report. That is linked in our show notes. And also make sure to go read that planning document to round out the story, because I think that's an important piece of context for this. We have spent countless episodes, and by we, I mean mostly Jigger. Uh, we've spent countless episodes railing against the Energy Information Administration's projections for renewable energy growth. Analysts across the board have long scolded EIA for its conservative forecasts for technologies like wind and solar. Why should we worry so much if one agency is so conservative? Well, the EIA does help inform public policy in a pretty big way. And as uh, Jigger and Catherine and many others have long pointed out, politicians use EIA data to make the case against renewables, even when that data does not match reality. Last week, EIA finally responded to critics. In a detailed and uh, pretty defensive report, the organization outlined why it forecasts the way it does. And I want to go through that defense. So, so Jigger, you get the first whack at this. I can already kind of imagine you pacing around your office with a victory flag in hand. What is your, <laughs> what is your reaction to EIA's response to critics like you? Well, I mean, I, frankly, I think my first reaction was, thank God that they were able to get some of the stuff off their chest. Because now we can move on and actually try to improve things. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, EIA really um, has done themselves an enormous disservice in this area. And, you know, there are sort of constant harangues around, uh, well, this is really just a portfolio and we can't predict future policy and all this other stuff, belies the fact that they were really anti-renewables. I mean, what EIA was saying in their base forecast was that that if all solar and wind tax credits went away, then 100% of all solar and wind projects would go away. They were projecting that for 20 years, there would be not a single megawatt of new solar or wind added to the U.S. grid, which is laughable. We have talked for, for a long time about how wind energy is actually really driven by the renewable portfolio standards that are already in law. Those would still be enforced even if the tax credits weren't there. So they clearly just didn't understand the drivers of renewable energy and were too shy to ask for help. What they're saying is that they admit fault, they're asking for help, and they've got these groups together, and I think that they're going to do a better job, which warms my heart. Clearly, there are a lot of faults uh, when it comes to their forecasting, but we can't say they're anti-renewable. When your conclusion says that there will not be a single megawatt of solar and wind added for the next 20 years without the ITC and PTC, you don't think that that's a reason to go, huh, wait, what, how do we get to that conclusion? Okay, to be fair, right? both Roan Resch and uh, the, the previous CEOs at OWEA have said that Wind and solar installations will practically drop to zero if we don't have tax credit extensions. Wait, they had uh, to say that to get the extensions. Exactly. That, well, exactly. That's their advocacy position. That is not a data-driven position. Well, Green aren't they at fault, is, too? Not, no, they're not at fault. I mean, it's their job to get things passed. I mean, but Green Tech Media's analysts did not say that that solar would go to zero if the ITC wasn't extended. They said it might go down by 70%, but it wouldn't go to zero. Yeah, I just I just think that 
we shouldn't call out EIA for political posturing and then say it's okay for the solar and wind industry to overstate their case. Are you kidding me? The EIA is supposed to be a nonpartisan, impartial supplier of data by which regulators and others around the country can build their policy forecasts on top of, right? And even if you suggest that the reference case that everyone gets mad about um, is for a case where, you know, policy that has expiration dates expire, if you're telling these, you know, folks that without the ITC and PTC that solar and wind go to zero, that is what they are hearing and that is what they believe. And it is not a good thing to tell people out there that with the cost reductions within the solar and wind industry and the capacity factor increases that we would go to zero. It's just patently false. Uh, EIA would argue that their forecasts um, are not really forecasts. I mean, people say, people often take that reference case and think of it as a forecast, but uh, it's sort of a middle-of-the-road projection, and people put way too much weight on it. Great. So what are they projecting in the middle-of-the-road fork in the middle of the road prediction or forecast what are exactly are they saying with that that you believe that you know puts them in the right i'm not saying that they're necessarily right i'm just saying that they're not anti-renewable i mean they're just How way too conservative it? i mean like if if somebody that was supposedly <laughs> for renewables or even even you know like impartial on renewables said that without the itc and ptc solar and wind would drop to zero for the next 20 years what would you think that their position really is? I would think it was pretty consistent with what the wind and solar industry were saying. But they're not saying that. In any major yes, report, they have. Green Tech Media is not saying that. Strategies Unlimited never said that. Penwell never said that. Like any of the actual forecasting entities who provide forecasts. Citibank never said that. JP Morgan never said that. None of the analyst reports say that. The fact that Roan Resch and now like, you know, the AWEA folks are saying that like if we don't get this extension, we're going to lose all these jobs. That is their job to create this sort of like false sense of doom and gloom. That is their job. Like you can't, they're not experts in forecasting um, megawatt growth. Yeah, I think that's true. So, and I think one of the things that EIA is trying to do, um, which will be helpful, because I think a lot of this was just, we didn't know what, where they were coming up with this, but more disclosure and explanation of all of their modeling assumptions on future policies, on going forward costs, and on the predicted growth rate of demand. I think that's all really, um, that's going to be to the benefit, because the more you can see the more transparency the transparency there is, the better off we're going to be. I, I was talking to uh, Alex Gilbert, who is the co-founder of Spark Library, which is um, this resource that allows people to, to take data in the electricity sector and model it in easy ways. And he's been pretty critical of EIA as well. He's done a lot of research uh, looking at a decade worth of their projections and you know, he's been very, again, very critical of EIA, but also said that this report is a very good step in the right direction. And they've said that they're going to improve their overweighted biomass projections, which will improve their reports over time. They've been really sketchy about policy uncertainty. And now that we actually have certainty with the ITC and PTC passed, that should help them going forward. Because in this report, they highlighted some of their best forecasts which came after the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which provided a few years of certainty. And it turned out that once they factored that in, their forecasts were pretty correct. Um, 
And well, again, Alex I just had a great I think tweet storm. <laughs> oh yeah, it was fantastic. And, and so, David I mean, Roberts Alex compiled and I, I that. Are literally agree with each other 110. percent I mean, we're we're really happy that the EIA has come clean and is now saying we have a problem and we will try to address it. They were defensive about the way they said it, which is their prerogative. I don't think that served them well, but that's their choice. But I'm glad that they're not going to be anti-renewables anymore. And I want to give EIA some credit because a number of people that I talk to, very serious analysts, recognize that EIA has world-class data on previous capacity installations. Like, they have really good data sets. It's just their forecasting that's not very good. The data sets are are data sets that we help them design. Like, it's SIA and AWIA that actually give them the data and help them cross-reference all that stuff. They don't independently come up with it themselves. Well, I actually see this more like the way we're trying to change FERC, which is, you know, there are markets that have been created because there was an incumbent industry and everybody did the same thing the same way and they had the same way of looking at data. And I think EIA has been in a similar situation where, you know, with the incumbency, they are collecting, they've collected data over many, many years. They have really good data sets, as Stephen said, but now we have to open it up to other Right. Other types of data and other way of other ways of looking at it, and it's taken a little while. I mean, I think it's it's one of those those entities that really you really have to shift the the ship, and it sounds like they're really trying to make an effort to do that. Yeah, I think I they deserve credit here. Well, and then and what do you think about? Do they also deserve credit for keeping coal at thirty two percent of U.S. electricity production in twenty forty? I mean, that's that's clearly an absurd forecast as well. Well, so. but come on. Stephen, I mean, like, look, I get the fact that you're a journalist and you have false equivalents and you want to, like, basically give them (laughs) the other side of the story. But, I mean, under the clean power plan and all the other stuff that's going on, how would anybody with half a brain cell think that we were going to be at 32 percent coal in 2040? I mean, I don't really know how to answer that. I can't speak. I can't speak for them on that issue. They're anti-renewables. Just let's just They're not anti-renewables. What do you mean? I mean, like, Catherine, how else do you describe the fact that they're projecting coal at 32% in 2040? Yeah, I'm just not in the same place you are, Jigger, but I, I get that that is way off. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, like, you know, if it looks like a spade and, like, you know, it smells like a spade, it talks like a spade, it walks like a spade, it's probably a spade. I've never smelled a spade before. Ooh, <laughs> it smells good. So I'm going to link to David Roberts piece and jigger you had a reaction piece too that'll be in the show notes uh and and in that david robert piece he has a a nice storify collection of alex gilbert's tweet storm and alex had a really stellar reaction outlining the pros and cons of eia's analysis so check that out let's move on to our third topic uh for our final story we turn to another government entity the national renewable energy laboratory or nrel where Catherine is right now in an office somewhere in the building. NREL is out with a new technical report showing that America can get 39% of its electricity from rooftop solar systems alone. That's almost double previous estimates. This new analysis used the laser-based surveying technology LIDAR to measure rooftop solar potential in 128 cities. NREL researchers then apply their findings across the rest of the country, finding that big and small roofs could generate 1,432 terawatt hours of annual generation. That's a really impressive number. Catherine, you have been at NREL. I don't know if you've actually talked to anyone about this study. Uh, What was your reaction? Any particular insight on this particular analysis? 
Yeah. So first, as you say, it's an update of a study that was done in 2008, and they've been working on this for quite some time. What I thought was amazing is that this is such a a big difference from what had come up with before. And while only 26% of the total rooftop area on small buildings is suitable for PV deployment, it really represents... 65% of rooftop PV's total technical potential. So small buildings have an enormous potential, which leads to all kinds of other conclusions about what, where you need to look for rooftop consumers and where your potential is in urban settings. So I think it's really interesting The the folks, so it's like 65% would come from small buildings and 35% from larger, uh, larger buildings. Um, and I just I find this is incredibly interesting that this could be 39% of the total national electricity sector sales. Jigger, NREL attributes the this dramatic increase to improved module performance, uh, better measurements of like building suitability, better simulation tools for PV system design. Um, thoughts on those factors? Why have we dramatically increased so much over the 2008 estimate? Well, I mean, I think that that's, I mean, it's, it's part of what I've been saying for a while is that the real value in solar going forward is not module efficiency. The real value going forward is the improvement in power electronics. You know, part of this is that um, there were a lot of roofs that were uh, removed uh, because of shade concerns in the 2008 study, which no longer have to be removed because of microinverters where you can actually have a panel in the shade for 45 minutes and it doesn't materially impact its production for the for the day um, or the year, and so so I, I think this is an amazing study. I think the quality of the data is extraordinary, and the one thing I do want to point out to you know everyone is that the forty percent number sort of belies um, the real like truth in numbers here. The real truth in numbers is when you look at a technical potential of one thousand one hundred eighteen gigawatts, that's more instantaneous capacity than in the entire United States of America. So if we built all of that, you would meet 100%, actually more like 130% of peak load in the United States from solar. So um, it doesn't make sense to build this much um, distributed solar. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a big number, but we have to be realistic about this. So there's resource potential, there's technical potential, there's economic potential, and then there's market potential. And you know, technical potential does not necessarily mean all of that resource is economic to harness. But so what they need to do in the future, and they mentioned this in the paper, is they need to combine that productivity from PV with the potential to offset what buildings are consuming. And how does that change what you need from your local distribution system? And what is how does that then change customer adoption and the timetable for that adoption? So when I called the folks at NREL about this paper, I said, all right, what is this saying? What does this mean for uh, policy, of course? And what my contact there said, look, this offers a solid analysis of the market potential. And that means that there's this enormous opportunity for cities to become leaders in distributed generation. And this will give them what they need and in any future reports to really take this data, these data, and and develop policies within cities to really move uh, PV to rooftops. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking to Robert Margolis, who is the lead on this. He's a senior energy analyst at NREL. 
And he was uh, the one who came across this data. So- someone knew that he was really interested in getting better data sets on solar's technical potential. And someone got access to Department of Homeland Security LIDAR data, shoveled it over to him, and he set up this team to update this report. And that's exactly what he said to me. He He explained that this provides so much better targeting for the solar industry. It's the first time they've been able to use this raw LIDAR data, and they're actually making it accessible to the solar industry. But it allows them to go city by city and really target which cities are the best for deploying solar and to think about how to target markets more broadly. So you can go down into zip codes. You can go down and and building level data, but there are a variety of ways to do that. But he really said that this was a new way to think about how to deploy solar across cities more broadly. So that backs up your assessment, Catherine. Yeah, and I'll tell you, um, you know, we were talking about EIA and all the macro data issues. NREL has a ton of really granular data sets, and those are available. A lot of those are available to the public. Now, a lot of large companies work with them on getting that, but entrepreneurs also have access, and that's a big um, push for them is to try to allow startups and entrepreneurial companies to get access to the to these data so that they can also then start um, pushing into these into these great target areas. So uh, Josh Rhodes at uh, the University of Texas Austin did I think by far the best piece on this um, in uh, theconversation.com and uh, he actually put in a dynamic GIF that not only took this data but then also overlaid the cost per watt. Um, and showed how many counties in the United States became cost effective without the 30% tax credit, um, you know, based on what the dollar per watt installed cost was. And, um, and so I think when you marry this data with Josh's dynamic GIF, I think you really get a good picture. But I think what it, what it really says is that we can get the large bulk of our peak demand in this country from uh, distributed generation um, on rooftops, which is great. I encourage everyone in the solar industry who's thinking about solar deployment to go check this out. Uh, NREL got boxes and boxes of CDs from the Department of Homeland Security and went through all this raw LIDAR data. And then now they have all the process data that they are sharing with the solar industry. And uh, Robert Margolis called it a treasure trove. You can go to NREL's website, and it is um, it is maps dot nrel dot gov slash pv dash rooftop dash lidar i know that's a mouthful but there you can access a lot of the data that they've been using for this technical potential and we will of course link to that report and that data on our podcast page let's finish the podcast now tell our listeners something they don't know Catherine, what do you got uh so i'm going to talk a little bit about nrel Uh, because I had this great tour of their newest facility, which was completed in 2014. It's called the ESIF, the Energy Systems Integration Facility. It won the R&D Magazine Lab of the Year Award in 2014. It's LEED Platinum Platinum Certified for a zillion different reasons. But what is really interesting about this facility is that it's a user facility. So companies can come in and bring their equipment and test it in a variety of conditions. And they can do it from a grid scale, from a home scale. All of these are connected. And one of the tests that was done, I found completely fascinating, which was done a couple of years ago, but they're going to redo the testing tomorrow, as a matter of fact. And so this is HECO. 
And Hiko in Hawaii, as we have discussed many times, was having reliability issues. And um, the solar companies, Solar City in particular, who helped fund this um, study, said, look, we have inverters. In-phase inverters can help solve these issues. I mean, the, the problem Hiko was having was that the aggregated solar was greater than the thermal mass. And they were very worried that if the solar dropped off, um, th the thermal plants would not be able to would not be able to backfill. Well, so they tested this. And Enphase inverters, as a matter of fact, are about 80% of the inverters in Hawaii right now. It turned out that they are able to control it, that they tested it here and proved that the inverters were able to open up and ride through. And this then, in turn, enabled them to up their uh, HECO's interconnection to over 250% of daytime load. And at, with their interconnection standards, they removed that cap altogether. Now four other companies are coming in tomorrow. They're going to be testing their inverters. But this is a way where we can really test something under conditions that simulate the conditions in the field and then put it out into the field. And Hawaii, being on the bleeding edge, is a, is a perfect example for how to do that. So I was pretty impressed. NREL, man, a national clean tech gem. Absolutely. So many cool projects over there. Jigger, tell us something we do not know. Well, I think I have something that everyone knows, but we didn't talk about yet, which was that uh, you know Tesla plans to unveil its Model 3 electric car in its Los Angeles design studio that starts at $35,000. I just wanted to mark this moment because I really do think this is the make or break moment for Tesla and, um, you know, and its bid to remake the auto industry. Um, you know, something on the order of 2.1% of new cars purchased in the United States last year cost over $75,000, but 35% or 5.5 million cars cost um, $35,000 or more. So, um, you know, they basically are going after a full third of the U.S. market uh, with a 200-mile range, and um, I think it's going to be really exciting to see how this plays out. Oh, that's what they're doing tonight? I thought that Apple was going to announce that it's acquiring Tesla and I was going to have to buy you a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I still think that's going to happen, but I think, I think I've already lost that bet, which means that I probably have to buy you a cocktail. <laughs> I just wanted to mention a brief story that I read this week from Mother Jones. Uh, Corey Lewandowski, who is Trump's campaign manager worked for Americans for Prosperity in my home state of New Hampshire and actively lobbied against um, the stimulus package, against Obama's big green boondoggle, as they like to call it, but also years ago worked for Borrego Solar and lobbied heavily for federal funding for solar projects. And I thought that was uh, quite an ironic twist and goes to show you how... Uh, you know, in the lobbying game, people go back and forth all the time. That is ironic. I hadn't heard it. Thank you all so much for listening and joining us each week. Thanks for getting us past one million downloads. Help us get to the next million by sending links for our show to your friends, to your colleagues, anyone who might be interested. And if you don't already, subscribe to the show on a podcast app of your choice. You can do it at iTunes, on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Overcast. There are so many new apps out there, and you can just uh, choose one, and we'll be there. Don't forget about our Solar Summit. You can get a 15% discount by using the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, on checkout. And that Solar Summit is coming up in Arizona on May 11th and 12th, and we've got our Solar Software Summit the day before on the 10th. 
Finally, we always like to hear from our listeners, so send us a note with your thoughts or questions to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Catherine, um, enjoy your trip back from NREL. How long are you there for? I'm leaving this afternoon, and it is snowing here, so I will be super happy to get back to D- warm and sunny D.C. All right, fingers crossed for you that you actually get out of there, although yeah. Colorado's pretty good. So, uh, Jigger, enjoy the movie premiere tomorrow night. Can't wait to hear how it goes. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. I, yeah. I, I think uh, we're, we're going to get a lot, of, uh, a lot of good press for the solo industry out of it. You'll have to give us your own review. <laughs> With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.